second daughter, Lucy, was about two or three years old. I remember this morning. It's one of my favorite memories uh, so far of, of, my, uh, of my Lucy. She was about two or three years old. We were the only two up on this particular morning at our home. And so as, as you do as a parent, sweetie, are you, are you hungry? Do you want some breakfast? Yes, I want waffles, my little Lucy said. I said, waffles, great. So we go into the kitchen. We open up the freezer for those Eggo waffles. We have none. Oh, no. So I go to the pantry and look, and we have, no, we have no pancake batter. We got nothing. We have nothing to either, you know, fall out some waffles or make waffles. And so I go up to my little Lucy, and I say, Lucy, I am so sorry. We do not have waffles, and we have nothing to make them. And she looks at me kind of curiously, and she opens up the freezer. She looks in there, and she closes it, and then she looks back up at me, and she goes, so I want waffles. Now this puts me into a predicament as a father, right? Is that she wants something, I want to give it to her, I want to provide a breakfast, but I do not have what she desires. And so I'm curious this morning, as we get into Luke chapter 22 here in just a few moments, I'm curious if you would identify with this. And you ever feel like, does it ever come to you? That as you study God's word, as you listen to the words of Jesus Christ, as you pay attention to the teachings of our Lord and Savior, if you ever feel like, you ever feel like it seems impossible to achieve or to get what is being asked of you. What may be being asked of you is waffles, right? But you look and you're like, I got nothing to make waffles. I got no way to provide what is being asked. It seems daunting and difficult, that it seems too much, that the situation or the moment or the circumstances of life and whatever may be going on kind of, kind of peer into, your, into the moment, into your eyes and look at you and say, I need this from you. You ever hear this in the teachings of Jesus and think, I can't do that. There's no way. And this, there's one of two things I think generally that happens in these kinds of moments. We One, we begin to justify um, that Jesus is saying this and not so much that, right? We begin to say, well, he, he's looking for ideals. He's looking for, for grand hope that we will just at least be better but not necessarily live up to that because that seems impossible. There's no waffles for us to get to that, right? Or what we say is, as well, that's impossible, so it can't be true, and we discard it. Generally, one of these two things tends to happen. And so what I want to do uh, this morning is I, I, I don't want to dwell necessarily into the, in, into the deep end of how do we handle, though we will approach this to a certain degree this morning, I don't want us to necessarily look for the, 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 the one, two, or three right steps to handle difficult teachings. What I want us to do is I want us to pay attention to the difficult teachings of Jesus, and I want us to see hopeful and grace-filled moments that come even out of the, the same Lord and Savior who, who asks and demands difficult things. There's grace and there's hope that are found in that same Lord and Savior when we look at these kinds of waffle moments and try to figure out how can we do this? What does this mean for us? How can we, how can we ever do this? And so, let me 
Let me share a little bit of, of me this morning. And this, this, what I'm sharing with you now, is a continuing work in progress, a continuing inner study and conversation with myself and with my Lord. And so in no way am I going to share what I'm going to share and say, well, I've got it figured out, because I do not want that to be the impression, nor do I want to share what I'm sharing and want you to come across or come, come away with, well, let me give you the answer. That's not what I'm looking for, okay? What I want to share is the difficulty that I find as someone who, um, who tries to read their Bible every day, who studies deeply every week, someone that, that has, has, has built a professional life and, and sharing and preaching the Word of God, that there are still moments where I hear or pay attention to the words of Jesus and go, man, he's asking for waffles, and I got none in the freezer. What do I do? There are teachings, for instance, that I can pinpoint to just a little bit over a decade ago that have been stirring inside of me for a little over 10 years, that have, that have caused some inner spiritual crises within me. So when I hear Jesus, and I've said this before, but the Sermon on the Mount is a pretty centering um, anchoring text for Mat Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not always great at this, and just like you, with your Bible reading, I go through seasons, but I try to be in the Sermon on the Mount every day. Okay? Now, I'm not perfect in that, but I try to anchor myself there. And when I get to teachings that Jesus has in three straight chapters, and there are things that Jesus says as example, when he says, do not be angry with anyone, I'm thinking, well, that seems really hard, right? He's asking for waffles, and I got none. Laura's been in the car with me. She knows that me not being angry is very hard, right? When I hear Jesus uh, say things like, don't simply love your neighbor, Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I'm thinking, how in the world do we achieve this? And again, we can do one of two things. Well, he's just giving us high ideals to hope for, shoot for, that we'll never achieve, but we should at least think about it and try for it, and it sounds great, and we should study it, or we discard it because it doesn't make any sense to us. We don't have the waffles in the freezer. Now, when I hear these kinds of things, and I began to study more deeply the Sermon on the Mount, and using these as a couple of examples, I began to wrestle with this notion that I believe that Jesus may be calling his people to pacifism, a complete and utter rejection of, of, of harming and doing harm to other people. Now, I know you immediately hear a word like that, and you, here's what happens, is 
you either go, well, that's interesting, or you immediately, have, you, some of you have already done, started thinking the practicalities of that are impossible. I get it. Outside of my wife, Laura, I've had this conversation until this moment with two other people in this 10 years. And both times that I've brought up this idea and natural conversation with trusted people, both times, immediately, here's what, here's what the question was. If it wasn't question one, it was question two. And question one or two was, well, if someone's hurting your child in front of you, what are you going to do? Nothing. Now I'm thinking, wait a second. I'm not a saint, right? If I see something like this, so it brings up, and I only bring this up because it brings up this, this inner conflict. Because Jesus, I do believe, is calling his people to a life that completely and utterly rejects completely and utterly rejects harming and taking life and relationship from other people. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, he doesn't say, well, get away from them. He says, stand your ground, turn to them, and let them slap you on the other cheek. And I do not believe anywhere in Scripture, especially in the teachings of Jesus, that he's just giving high ideals. I think he means what he says. And so now what this does is, is it causes an internal conflict deep within me of how in the world can I wrestle with or, or, or apply the teachings of Jesus when I'm in the midst of a, a, a dangerous, uh, evil situation like that. Like the example that Jesus gives of turn, to, turn the other cheek. I don't have the answers, and I'm not bringing this up to give you the answers. I bring this up because the eternal conflict that we sometimes have in the teachings of Jesus are very real, and I want us to acknowledge that. Last week, we, uh, as we have, we're kind of slowly working through the last night of Jesus' uh, life up to his crucifixion. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been praying when Judas and the Roman soldiers come to arrest him. And the instinct of Peter is to draw his sword and to cut off an ear of a Roman soldier. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He says, whoa, 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 no. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and that's not how we do things in my kingdom. And he heals the ear, and he tells Peter to put that away because it's not going to happen on his watch. And now we're in conflict because... If anyone we love or any moment we're in danger, we're supposed to protect. We're supposed to, we're supposed to do something about this. And Jesus says, this is not how it's to be done. And so I heard from several. And I, I, I am not, I am not um, separated from this. I struggle with this idea too. Because I heard from several. Well, what is the practicality of that? I mean, how am I supposed to live in victory when, when evil, so to speak, is overcoming and, at the, and right before me? Sometimes we need the sword, might be our justification. Sometimes we need to, to, to stomp out something that's going on. 
And so the practicality of what's taking place in G with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount become completely and utterly gray and muddied when we start thinking about how we apply it to our very own lives. Now, this is where I want us to find some hope and some grace in Jesus Christ. Because I do believe, one, Jesus is teaching and he expects his people to be willing to turn the other cheek and to love enemies and pray for those people who may be persecuting them in this moment. This is not high pie in the sky kind of, well, let's just think about it. And it's not rejection of the way life actually lives. He wants us to struggle with this practical application of his teachings. But he also, but he also provides grace to those who struggle in these kinds of moments. I do believe that. And so we find ourselves at the crossroad yet again. When we find Jesus with impossible at times teachings, and we begin to question, like I heard from several of you last week, how? How? How can I do that? How do I apply that? How can I live these kinds of teachings? And at the crossroad, we find ourselves having to ask the question, how? But we also find ourselves at the crossroad knowing that the road we travel has already been traveled before us. Luke chapter 22, verse 34. Again, Jesus' final night as he's on his road to crucifixion. We have what Jesus knew was going to happen. Luke chapter 22, verse 34. At the Last Supper, Jesus reminds and tells Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And what we find out, we're going to read through this here in just a moment, Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62, is that Peter yet again finds himself at the crossroad where he must make a decision. Is he going to live what Mitchell read out of Matthew chapter 16, what we read last week out of Mark chapter 8, the teachings of Jesus where Jesus reminds us that if you're going to follow him, you must first deny yourself and then take up your cross, or will you seek victory another way? Is victory different for you? Now, Peter finds himself in a very dangerous moment in Luke chapter 22. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus is now at the house of the high priest where he's being held before his trial and his accusations will be read to him. And there's a crowd who awaits this kind of moment. What will the high priest say? What will be the verdict? What will happen to this, this so-called criminal, criminal that has been arrested? And Peter, unlike the other disciples, he stays rather close to Jesus. I think Peter... I think Peter is doing the best he can in the moment. He doesn't want to flee Jesus. And so he wants to be as close as he can. And so he actually takes a dangerous step. And being around the people, the crowd, the mob, and being as close to Jesus as, he's, as he can, because in some way I think Peter wants to keep his eyes on Jesus. 
But Jesus said something would happen, and here's what we find out in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Then seizing him, they led him away. They took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some were there and had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard, he had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you were also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter exclaimed. Verse 59. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, was for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before, before the rooster crows, today you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. In my, in my go-to physical Bible, I, have, I wrote this a very long time ago. I wrote this, I gave this passage of scripture, Luke 22, 54 through 62, my own title. And I titled it, The Saddest Moment. That's a pretty sad moment. It's a sad moment because Jesus is denied not once, not twice, but three times. And he's denied, he's denied by Peter of all people, the one who steps out unto the water because he has great faith. The one who's willing to pull out his sword and die for his rabbi. The one who has declared multiple times in his ministry that he would go with him wherever he goes and he would die for him. It's a sad moment. And for a long time, I always saw this passage of scripture as just kind of the, 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 the down moment of the story of Jesus's gospel. But I see it differently now. Peter was not trying to abandon Jesus. He was doing what he thought was best, and yet he still stumbled and fell and still denied Jesus as Jesus had told him he would. But Peter wanted to be there. And so I began to see Peter in this moment of eternal struggle, trying to understand what is his role? What am I supposed to do? Jesus has... He has called me the rock. He talked about going to the cross. He talked about denying self and being with him. And, and, and some of that is, is, is real big understandings and I don't quite grasp everything, but I feel like I'm supposed to be around here. And Peter, being as close as he can, begins to fall closer and closer to the crowd. And, and I, I, I sympathize with Peter. He doesn't know what to do. And so for Peter, being in this crowd in this moment, in this great internal struggle that I can imagine that he must be going through on the night that his, his Messiah is arrested and being held and tortured before his very eyes at the courtyard of the high priest, the struggle that he must be going through, this, this internal conflict of what do I do, leading him to think that victory now looks like staying alive. 
anyone identifies me, I will either be killed by the crowd or I will be arrested by the Romans. And so for Peter, he begins to justify that if I can just deny him now, I'll chance later. Victory at all cost. Do what you can. We must win. We must get him out. Peter must be thinking. But the saddest moment is also, as I see it, a hopeful, grace-filled moment. See, Peter's real. And last time I checked, you were real. And these kinds of moments where it seems easier and justifiable to deny Jesus, to do things differently at work or talk differently with certain people, to, 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 to be a part of different activities and certain settings. These sad moments that ultimately deny your relationship with Jesus Christ are also moments where hope and grace can rise to the surface. Jesus knows. And Jesus is there. And I don't think Jesus looking... I really do believe this. I don't think Jesus looking down Peter at that third denial is a way of saying, told you so. I think it's a moment that Jesus wants him to know, I am with you. In the saddest moment, it's a hopeful, grace-filled moment. So now let's turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. is this moment that Jesus has after his crucifixion, now risen from the dead. John chapter 21, the, the entire chapter is Acts to Luke. This is this post-dead Jesus, who is now alive and the church will now grow from this moment in the resurrected Jesus Christ, we begin to see what victory looks like out of an empty tomb in John chapter 21. And in John chapter 21, one of the pivotal moments out of this, this risen Jesus, out of this growth into the growing into a new church, is this, inner, this exchange that Jesus had to Peter. The Peter who denied him three times. The Peter who had the internal struggle, the sad moment, but it was also a hope, grace-filled moment because the risen Jesus, verse 15 of John chapter 21, said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. When Jesus said, feed my lambs, and again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself 
and you went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, I think it's also interesting that the word dress can also be interpreted the word bound. And I think the idea for Jesus here is that Peter will now, because of his confessions, stretch out his hands and be bound to the cross in death or in victory. And there is a cost to victory. This is the same Peter who not only went out and walked on water in his great faith, who was willing to pull out his sword and die for Jesus. This is the, the Peter who seems very overly protective of Jesus through his ministry, but this is also the same Peter who is the first disciple to confess aloud that Jesus is his Lord and his Messiah. And yet again, now we have in John chapter 21 a moment for Peter to confess to understand, to say aloud, I love you, I love you, I love you. But for Jesus, it now comes down to following him to the cross. Peter will have to pay the price of victory, which for all of us is the price of denying self taking up that cross that we will die on and carrying it to defeat, where death will take us, but life will overcome. You see, for Peter, the cost of victory is not simply confession, it is living it out, and that grace, hopeful moment is not sad anymore. Why? Because Jesus restores those who do not know what to do, and I find hope in that. I don't have to have the answers. I don't have to understand how to do this. I don't have to get all the answers, all my ducks in a row. I don't have to get what it means to turn the uh, turn cheek. I don't have to understand what it means to love my love and struggle with that and think I have failed. You know why? Because the Jesus who looks at Peter, why he is arrested and in the court of the high priest, the Peter who's denied him, the Peter who said he was willing to die for him, die for that Peter is forgiven. And that Peter is given the opportunity at the crossroad to follow him into death. I don't have to have all the answers. I need you to know this, church. You don't have to have the answers. You see, the cost of victory has been paid in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you have to do. There is nothing you have to achieve. There is nothing you have to obtain. There is no status. There is no wealth. There is no position. You simply have to go to Jesus at the crossroad. You simply have to deny yourself. You have to be willing to take up the cross. You have to be willing to follow him. His calling to you is to not be powerful and influential. His calling to you is to follow him. And I wonder, I wonder what kind of struggles each of us, each of us, 
what it means to be at that crossroad and to acknowledge that there is nothing, nothing I can do or have or achieve, and that it all has been given to me victory through Jesus Christ. So I want to leave you, I know I'm over, I want to leave you with one practical way. I find this quite interesting, and I'm not going to dive into all of this uh, in this moment. But if you back up in Luke chapter 20, chapter 20, I want to leave you with a couple of verses. Couple, because yet again, what we find ourselves is, is great preaching words, great, great churchy stuff, but how? Okay? I want us to find encouragement in knowing that you don't have to know everything, that Jesus will be there with you. But I also want us to understand that we have ways of living out the teachings of Christ. And earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus is arrested, before Peter's denial, there is a moment. And this moment is a small way for us to start thinking practically about the, the involvement and the application of Jesus' teaching. It's not going to be everything, but I sure do think it's a pretty good first step. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 and 40. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, as you keep reading, and I hope you will, as you keep reading, the disciples do not keep on praying. They fall asleep. Peter's included in this. Uh, John, the Gospel of John, has a much more detailed story or account of this. But the disciples are told to pray, and they fall asleep. Now, were the words of Jesus, the prophecies of Christ, going to be fulfilled? Absolutely. But could have Peter prevented his denial? Could he have found himself at the crossroad that night, willing to go to the cross with him that very night, if he had prayed to not fall into temptation? It's an interesting question that I don't have the answers for. But what I do have is that there's a moment here where Jesus is saying, you know what? There's a moment that you can start to practically involve yourself into the teachings of Jesus Christ when you pray. Prayer is not simply communication. It's communion. It's being in the presence of God. And when he rose from prayer, verse 45, and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep exhausted from sorrow, and he asked them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. I think Jesus is asking his disciples to draw into the presence of their Father. And Jesus' command to pray is a command to commit themselves and a difficult night and a difficult moment to the presence and teachings of their Father in heaven. That temptation may be overcome when we bring ourselves into the presence of God Himself. So maybe, perhaps, if we struggle with what it means to turn the other cheek or loving our enemies, perhaps our first practical step is to pray.
is to put ourselves in the presence of God. You are invited in this place to stay close to Him on this crossroad. This morning I offer an invitation, the Lord's invitation. One of our shepherds, Mark Dobrins, will be available in the back of this cafeteria. I'll make myself available right here in the front. But we're going to stand here and sing one last song in this place. And you're invited to respond, not to me. Respond to the Word of God. What is God telling you, stirring deep within you? What does it mean to sit at that crossroad? And what does it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him even to death on that cross. May we be people who find ourselves at the crossroad every day and may we be God's people who are willing to know and to accept the grace that is there before us in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and let's sing.